The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Well, according to Magna Global Internet, Ad spending globally in 2018 was about $250 billion. That was about 45% of global ad spending went to the internet. We're starting to see some of those big internet companies report their first quarter earnings. We had some good numbers out of Twitter. Stock ran up big time. Snap had some pretty good numbers. And after the close tonight, we have Facebook help us talk about all things digital advertising. We welcome back Mark Douglas. Mark is the CEO of Steelhouse based in Los Angeles, California. Mark, thanks so much for joining us. Boy, business seems uh, pretty good for these big digital media companies. What are you thinking about Facebook after the close? Yeah, I think Facebook, um, what's going to be really confusing for a lot of people is Facebook faces and has faced and continues to face all this turmoil about privacy and other issues. But the bottom line is they don't really have much competition. They don't have much competition in terms of what other social networks consumers are going to use. It's not just Facebook. They also own Instagram and WhatsApp. And on the advertising side, they have even less competition. So we're not seeing at Fieldhouse, we're not seeing any kind of decline in spend on Facebook and Instagram. If anything, we're seeing an increase in spend on Instagram in particular. Did Twitter kind of show us that there is a shift, though, among advertisers, that they're willing to pay for quality, i.e., human beings rather than bots, sort of encouraging Facebook to possibly uh, clear out fake accounts or, you know, ones that kind of come from dubious provenance? Um, they're definitely, um, Twitter definitely seems to be investing in making sure that all their accounts are valid, they're real humans, um, things like that. The issue there is scale. So as an advertiser, um, it's a lot of work to create ads. It's a lot of work to create and manage these campaigns. And so Twitter just doesn't have anywhere close to the scale as Facebook and Instagram. I mean, I think Facebook is 11 times bigger. And then when you add Instagram into that, then it's you know, you're probably approaching 20 times larger. And so they're doing a good job, I think, Twitter, but they just don't have the scale to really capture the advertising dollars and the revenue that, that Facebook has. You know, speaking of Twitter, it uh, was reported that uh, Jack Dorsey, the CEO of Twitter, met with President Trump yesterday. Uh, boy, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall for that one. What do you think was going on there? Um, I, you know, it's an interesting uh, meeting. I read about that also. Um, I, the strategy at Twitter seems to be um, don't get blamed for the election cycle, <laughs> the upcoming election right. cycle. So um, seems to be part of the strategy. So I think um, kind of being in front of that, um, this, this seems like maybe it's a part of that 
strategy, or maybe Jack Dorsey, you know, just likes going to Washington. I'm not sure we'll ever know. <laughs> um, uh, we are getting some color around it saying that Jack Dorsey was explaining to President Trump that some of his uh, eliminated followers were bots, uh, and, and that, that was part of the issue. I am wondering from your perspective what you're looking for. If Facebook is such the dominant player in the advertising space and doesn't really have a whole deal of competition, what do you care? What are you looking for in the earnings that will sort of indicate to you either the pricing power for advertising or whether there's any shift toward any of its competitors? You know, for years, Facebook's um, CPM, kind of the cost per thousand ads, which is what, what um, how you price ads in the digital ad space, has been going up for Facebook. I think in recent times, it's been kind of floating down. Part of that is new markets where the pricing is not as strong. But I think part of that is um, Facebook itself, although they don't have a lot of competition, the platform itself just doesn't have the engagement that it once had. And so I think you know, the, the general feeling is eventually Facebook as a property is just feels like it's on it's a downward slope and i think everyone's trying to look for you know kind of is that accelerating when is that going you know when is that going to become a problem and so that's those kind of metrics are what i'd be looking for it's more the long-term investment not the, the near term so that raises a good question mark if if you know facebook feels from an advertising perspective and a usage perspective maybe a little bit mature to what extent do you think uh, Facebook can pull other levers, whether it's you know increasingly monetizing Instagram, maybe even WhatsApp and Messenger? Um, how successful do you think they'll be on pulling those levers? Yeah, I think on Instagram, the user growth on Instagram continue, appears to continue to be strong. That's another metric I'd, I'd be trying to get some insight into. Um, engagement is strong. You can just even feel it as an individual, just like I know among my friends. And, yeah, I can just, just see, you know, kind of how often um, Instagram is used. So I think that's, you know, kind of the saving grace of the company right now. I think the other thing is stories. So stories in, in Instagram are not monetized nearly as effectively as the feed. And so one just kind of personal prediction as someone in the ad business, I think store, some of those stories, some of the most popular ones will probably be moved into the news feed and they'll make them more monetizable. That's not something Facebook has told me. I just think that it's a logical step and it's something I'd want to see as an advertiser. We're speaking with Mark Douglas, the chief executive of Steelhouse, who uh, used to uh, run the engineering for eHarmony. And Steelhouse is uh, focused on AI-driven self-service advertising sort of targeted ads. And I'm just wondering, you know, we are expecting these earnings, but just uh, broadening out, what's the latest in terms of artificial intelligence and targeted ads uh, that you specialize in? Yeah, so what's happening in that space is that the ads business has traditionally been very human focused. You have media buyers and kind of a lot of people involved in the ad in the ad buying cycle, but with the scale you have now and especially the movement to connected television where people everyone is watching TV on demand, you're seeing that the ad buying is now becoming more and more automated. And so that's kind of technology we provide and I think where the industry is moving to pretty rapidly. So, Mark, just you mentioned that, uh, you know, it's not a lot of it's I guess it's pretty well known as well. That's not a lot of competition in the digital ad space. You kind of have Facebook, uh, you have Alphabet. To what extent do you think Amazon can become a viable third player in that space? Yeah, Amazon's kind of in a different place. So the, the what the, their ad business has grown 
um, obviously tremendously. It's a multi-billion dollar business. But really what they did is they started monetizing what they were giving away for free. So you went to Amazon, you did a search, and you got the search results, and that you know Amazon didn't charge anyone to be to have a higher placement in those search results. And so Amazon started a business where now if you want to be at the top of the search results, just like on a Google search, um, you can pay for that. Um, you can bid on that. You can pay for that. I don't really consider that being in in you know kind of like inroads into the ad business. I just consider that a tax on their retailers, <laughs> essentially, <laughs> that they figured out they they can charge. But they they're starting to enter a phase um, where they potentially are going to go beyond just kind of search results in Amazon and um, and start to really compete potentially uh, with Google. And I think also because of Amazon Prime connected television, the choice as to whether they start doing running um, selling ad space on Amazon Prime and other connected TV is kind of where the real competition potentially be. That's the yeah. massive shift in digital advertising is yeah. the shift from linear television to connected television. Mark Douglas, Chief Executive Officer of Steelhouse based in Los Angeles. Thank you so much uh, for your time. This year has been a tremendously uh, good year for U.S. equities, including the hospitality sector. I'm looking right now at the sub-index for the S&P 500, focused on hospitality, and it's returned nearly 19% year-to-date. Joining us to talk about uh, the latest and greatest in the industry, we're lucky to have Gilda Perez-Alvarado. She is Chief Executive Officer of uh, JLL Hotels and Hospitalities. Uh, JLL, Jones Lang LaSalle, is actually uh, one of the biggest in the space uh, operating in in the hotel and hospitality uh, sector. I'm just wondering, Gilda, what do you think is really behind the incredible boom that we've seen, at least in the share prices of the hospitality sector so far this year? Thanks, Lisa. Uh, very happy to be here. Uh, listen, fundamentals are very, very strong right now. So we're in the 10th year of the recovery. We are expecting um, for there to be positive REFPAR growth still. Uh, Travel and tourism patterns are also very positive. And, you know, as the economy goes, so does hotels. We're uh, very much related to GDP growth. So what's going on in the M&A space here? We see a lot, oftentimes when a big hotel trades, uh, you know, it makes front page news. How are the trends M&A wise in the hospitality space? Uh, it's a great question. Listen, we are at record uh, level of fundraising activity at the moment. Um, there's more investors, not necessarily hotel investors, but more generalist investors looking to make um, uh, entryway into or segue into the, the space. I think, um, you know, from an M&A activity, consolidation is extremely important. So bigger is better. And as I said, with uh, the level of fundraising that we've had right now, people are looking at uh, mean uh, meaningful ways of the capital deployment at the stage. One thing I'm struggling with is on one hand, people seem to be increasingly confident about the economy in the United States anyway. On the other, there seems to be sort of a lack of faith in the ongoing strength that we've seen in the economy. There are a lot of people wondering, when are we going to see the next recession? How are you seeing that playing out in the hotel sector? Are people uh, increasing their spending on vacations right now? Or are they kind of hanging in there, hanging steady, or even reducing it in preparation for perhaps some kind of uh, leaner times? 
Listen, I think people are still a bit cautious, but there's no, you know, there's no indication right now that we're heading into a recession, right? So um, totally agree, but you still hear people talking about it. Absolutely. So I have to wonder, you know, are you seeing it actually affect business sentiment, you know? Uh, from a business perspective, no. From a travel demand pattern, no. Um, and I would say from, you know, hotel M&A activity, definitely not. What are some of the areas, you know, M&A, you talk about fresh capital, chasing hotel uh, properties. Are there certain regions of the world that are better, hotter than others? Yeah, so we just wrapped up an investor uh, roadshow in Asia last week. Before that, we were in Europe, and uh, prior to that, we were in the Middle East. I would say, um, you know, the two most uh, sought-after geographies, the United States and the UK, even with Brexit. So what tie-ups are you expecting or could you see happening? In terms of activity? Mm -hmm. Listen, what are people chasing right now? So people love resorts. People love select service portfolios. I think it's a flight to quality. And the reason why London and New York continue to be the first and second most liquid markets is people want to go in. And then to your point, Lisa, what happens if they have to sell? There's a ton of liquidity here, so you can always sell. Okay, we just, but I'm wondering, are there names? In terms of uh, what people to expect? People acquiring others. <laughs> are we looking at, uh, you know, Hilton and... They're all very active right now. I mean, let's look at what's happened um, in the past several months. So you have uh, IHE acquiring Six Senses. That's a really interesting spotlight into what people are focused on with wellness. That's going to be really exciting. You have now the concept of the urban resort. So they're playing into that. Uh, Marriott buying Starwood, um, you know, not too long ago. And we're still seeing the benefits of that consolidation. So I do expect more to happen. And I think there should be. Some she's punting very gracefully. <laughs> this well. is very she, impressive. She's experienced. She's, she just came off the roadshow. She's been. She's, <laughs> she's, well, she's well versed. But in one thing I want to, when I read, you know, about, you know, looking at resorts and things like that on the website, they talk about experiential travel. What is that? Isn't travel by definition an experience? I think you're absolutely right. That's a very <laughs> fancy, um, fancy name right now. It's anything and everything memorable. I think the traveler right now doesn't want the cookie cutter experience. And if you look at where people are focused on, it's all about, you know, experiences, right? That's Airbnb's angle into the hotel space. Live like a local, right? It's like experience. <laughs> Live like a local. I'm just a thinking. A beach, a pool. I'm, I'm I mean, you, you show up to the hotel, it isn't there. You're given a tent. I mean, that's an experience. That's memorable. I mean, what's the bar here? <laughs> I'm just wondering. I don't know. Go figure. Uh, one real quick question for you. I'm interested in some of the areas where there have been a lot of hotels. Uh, built. I'm thinking of New York City, for example. You know, is there evidence that you are seeing some weakening there and that that's going to kind of be capped in a decline? The huge wave of supply, I think it's behind us, right? There's still more rooms being delivered in New York, but the pace at which those are being delivered is definitely way down. Um, I would say, yes, investors are very much focused on supply growth, but there's markets like New York, Boston, San Francisco, London that are going through huge transformations in the city from an infrastructure perspective. So maybe hotels get a little bit ahead of themselves, but now you have office and you know all of these real estate investment right. and infrastructure investment supporting more demand. Got it. Gilda Perez Alvarado, thank you so much for joining us. Gilda is the CEO, uh, America's Hotel and Hospitality Group for JLL. She joined us on our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. 
Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Wells Fitzpatrick joining us now, Managing Director for E&P Research at SunTrust Robinson Humphrey, uh, coming to us from Houston, Texas. Wells, thank you so much for being with us. So it does appear that Occidental Petroleum is starting a bidding war for Anadarko uh, Chevron, of course, the other suitor here, bidder. Who do you think is a better potential winner of this fight? Hey, good morning. Yeah, it, it, it's back to exciting times in the in the oil patch. I think, and I think the market is telling us it would agree that Chevron is a little bit better as a natural fit here. Uh, the acreage overlaps uh, are really pretty, pretty rock solid. I mean, they fit like a puzzle. Uh, Oxy, you know, a, a fine company, of course, good Permian overlap. But you know, they'd be newer to Colorado. They'd be newer to the LNG game. They'd be newer to the Gulf of Mexico. So I think I think Chevron's a little bit better of of a fit. And I think that the market is telling us that with with uh, Oxy down, call it seven percent since since the uh, the news came out, and uh, the the EMP index up about the same, up about seven percent as well. So, Wells, what do you think Chevron is going to do here? What's the response going to be? I think they have to come back at it. I mean, you know, uh, uh, Mr. Worth was uh, was on TV, and he pretty pretty definitively said that, uh, you know, when we step into a deal, we intend to close that deal. Uh, so, you know, he laid it out there. I think that they have to come back with something. That being said, you know, looking through uh, uh, through the filing material, it's clear that, that, that uh, Anadarko prefers the Chevron bid, um, so, you know, do they really have to come back and top uh, 76 uh, uh, significantly or can, can they match it and, uh, uh, and maybe the board will go with them? I think, that they can, I think that they can match it. I think that they're in the advantage position, again, both from a, a balance sheet perspective, obviously, and from a market reaction perspective. It's just it's tough for a management team when you've underperformed by almost 15% since this news to be able to really dig in your heels. So here's what I'm struggling with right now. The fact is that most people in the market think that Chevron's going to win this bidding war if it turns into a bidding war. So is Occidental basically just saying, all right, we're going to punch a hole in our competition by forcing them to overpay for this deal? I mean, is that basically uh, what's going on here? Um, you know, I, I I think they really want it. Uh, I really do. Um, you know, Oxy is, is they're in a position. They do have great acreage in the Permian, but they're going to be throwing off a lot of cash going forward, especially from some of these international projects that they have, and they want to plow it back into something. Uh, so I, I don't think that they're necessarily doing anything to to harm Chevron. I think that they want the acreage because they want to be able to. Uh, to feed the free cash flow that's coming to them into an asset that's going to be able to give them solid returns. Anadarko clearly fits that bill. Now, uh, you know, I would agree with you. I'm a little bit surprised. There's there's plenty of other companies that fit that bill for, for a similar price tag. So, uh, you know, to come back in and to basically, you know, to be a, uh, call it a bantamweight and, and you decide to, to, to pop a heavyweight in the nose and go for a bidding war, I mean, that does seem a little bit aggressive, um, especially when, when the EMP space in general is selling at the bottom end of its multiple range. So there's there is a decent amount of opportunities, a decent amount of folks you could go after. 
So, Wells, let's talk about that a little bit. I mean, I, I, I'm sure energy bankers are picking up the phone this morning and, and, you know, dialing up all their clients, trying to get some deals on the table, trying to shake the trees a little bit. Do you expect a, a pickup in M&A or maybe this will spark a pickup in M&A uh, in the space? Yeah, I think it will. I mean, you know, you have a couple things that are happening. For the first time in a while, scale really matters. You don't want to be running one or two rigs. Uh, it's really just not that efficient. But more importantly, from a valuation perspective, there's about a two-turn multiple discrepancy between uh, the mid and large cap. So that obviously makes it a little bit easier to pay the premium. Uh, it makes it a little bit easier to get these deals done because you have a little bit of a natural arbitrage. But also, you, you, your incentives are lining up uh, 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 better. You have more activists coming into the space. And, um, and I know this is a little bit abrasive to some, but, but, but managements are getting pretty big payouts on the way out. And honestly, when I talk to investors, that's something that they're really encouraged by, somewhat counterintuitively, uh, because there's been a feeling that the pay packages are better for the management teams than anything they might get on the way out, even with a 20 or 30 percent premium. Um, so actually, these investors seem pretty happy to see uh, uh, these golden parachutes coming back because I think it'll lubricate the M&A. Just real quickly, that 20 seconds, Wells, give me a couple of names you think could be uh, pop up on the screen in terms of M&A targets. Yeah, absolutely. I think if you're looking for asset overlap, Noble and PDC uh, are almost perfect overlaps. If you're looking for uh, the blessing on the Colorado regulate, regulatory stuff, it's going to be SRC extraction. And, of course, if you want to go after the Permian, which is where most of the yep. speculation has been, uh, you'd, you'd want to look at uh, Pioneer and Parsley. Excellent. Good names. Thank you. I think, you know, I think there's going to be more M&A while we're here in this space. And uh, interesting to get some names there. Wells Fitzpatrick, Managing Director for EMP Research at SunTrust, uh, Robinson Humphrey. Well, the time has finally come for the market to find out just how ugly Tesla's first quarter was. Expectations for the period have been lowered sharply in recent weeks, especially after disappointing delivery numbers were announced earlier this month. To get the lowdown, we turn to Liam Denning, energy mining and commodities columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. He joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Liam, thanks so much for joining us. I want to start with the event that uh, the company held, um, I guess, yesterday about the autonomous vehicle any news out of that? What was that? Uh, what was it? Good, uh, good question. That is a so, good question. Um, I think, you Some know, people are calling it a smokescreen. Don't look at my production problems. Look at my something autonomous else. vehicles. Something, and something else. else. Something shiny. Well, look, I, th I think any, any investor day like that with any company uh, is usually geared towards saying, hey, we're doing something here that you guys aren't fully appreciating and therefore you know, you should be valuing our stock higher and, and embed the value of this in, in the stock, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, this really matters for, for Tesla um, because remember, as these, these numbers coming out tonight are quite likely to show, the value of Tesla is all in the multiple. It's not really in the earnings. And so if Tesla can demonstrate, hey, we're actually, you know, better at autonomy than people give us credit for, that's one way of, uh, boosting that multiple. Now, the reaction to the actual day was pretty lackluster. It didn't really do anything. Um, it reminded me a little of what happened when they unveiled the Model Y last month, which again, should have been 
you know, based on past form, a big deal, but actually was met with some skepticism. Um, and, you know, for me, one of the important things here, uh, people are focused on the share price, obviously, as, as they should be with Tesla. Um, but last night, the uh, the spread on uh, on Tesla's bonds hit its highest level yet, uh, just over, you know, 600 basis points. Um, so Tesla's coming into these results tonight um, having, you know, whether people call it a smokescreen or or whatever, but it but it definitely tried to move the narrative and it doesn't seem to have done much. Just to give some perspective here, Tesla shares are down about 21% so far year to date. One thing that I find interesting is it's been uh, relatively controlled in terms of decline based on, you're raising your eyebrows. It's not a big, it's not very controlled if it's 21% decline uh, in, you know, let's say less than four months. But I will say, Yes, you can be skeptical. I see your skepticism in your eyes. Um, but but I do think, you know, it's not sort of the massive plunge that a lot of short sellers have been expecting. It's been uh, sort of a steady decline throughout the year, no? Yeah, I mean, it's it's been reasonably steady. And obviously, short sellers always... Uh always hope for more and actually around that <laughs> all right fine. around that 260 level which is where it is now that's kind of been a flaw for the stock over the past um couple of years you look at the share price chart um it generally bounces from that level what's going to be interesting to watch is what happens after these results now to a certain extent skepticism's already priced in people are expecting these results to be bad after the sales numbers came out uh, you look at what's happened to consensus estimates, which, you know, frankly, with Tesla, you, you know, you may as well like lick your finger and put it in the air anyway on on any quarterly numbers. But um, uh, those have certainly been, you know, coming down quite sharply heading in. So, uh, you know, the number I'll be watching probably most closely tonight is the level of cash on the balance sheet. They had this big bond repayment. Um, clearly, sales were not that great. Uh, calls for them to raise equity, which never really go away, have been ramping up again. Um, so for me, that'll be the key number to watch. So give us just an update on, and I'm sure we'll obviously get a big update after the close tonight when the report, but just the status of the production issues at the company. I mean, we know that the, car, the cars are really cool, the technology's cool, but building these things is tough. What's the latest on kind of where they are with their production capabilities? That's an interesting question because... Um, you know, various targets have been thrown out by Tesla over time uh, as to where particularly production of the Model 3 was going to go. You know, originally the target was to get to 10,000 of these a week, um, you know, uh, I think a while ago, actually. Um, what we saw in the first quarter was weekly production was still not at 5,000 uh, on average. Um, it went up about 3%, I think, versus the, four quarter, the fourth quarter average. Um, Elon Musk clearly keeps talking about, you know, raising that target quite considerably and, you know, by tweeting about it has, has got back into trouble with the, with the SEC. Um, I think, you know, for me, one of the things about the production number is, and, ju and just coming back to the autonomy day the other day, you know, Musk made some very bold claims about the, the company's autonomy uh, capabilities. Um, some of them are quite interesting, although the way he framed it in particularly criticizing some other strategies did make me wonder how credible can that be yeah. if investors are also looking at the fact that you're struggling to build and deliver these cars? Tesla, the gift that keeps on giving, Liam, I'm sure you are excited to write your next column. 
Yeah, he looks thrilled. <laughs> Liam Denning is energy mining and commodities columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, joining us here in our interactive brokers studios. Always love speaking with him. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz One. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.